The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus went out along the sea. All the crowd came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the customs post. Jesus said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed Jesus. While he was at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners sat with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Some scribes who were Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors and said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard this and said to them, Those who are well do not need a physician, but the sick do. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. As we move through the weekdays of ordinary time, it, it can be helpful to have a sense of what is happening with the scripture readings. We're pretty, everybody seems pretty familiar with what happens on Sundays, and we have a three-year cycle by which we move through the different Gospels. During the course of the year, The weekday readings are on a two-year cycle, not a three-year cycle. And it's a two-year cycle of the first readings and responsorial psalms. So next year, on this same first week of ordinary time, on a Saturday, the first reading and the psalm will be different. But the gospel will be the same. And so the sequence of gospel readings through the weekdays of ordinary time is constant. And kind of parallel to what we do on Sundays, where there's year A, B, and C, each connected to a different gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the year, is the ordinary, the year of ordinary time is divided into three periods, each corresponding to a gospel. The very first period of the year is the Gospel of St. Mark. And so if it's not a feast day, when we gather for Mass on a weekday in ordinary time, we hear from the Gospel of St. Mark sequentially until we get to the section just before the Passion. And then we switch Gospels and we go to St. Matthew. And we do the same thing from St. Matthew. After the birth of Jesus, or basically after his baptism, to just before his passion, we read from St. Matthew. And when we finish that, we go to St. Luke. And so over the course of the year, we're going to keep cycling back to certain incidents in the life of Jesus just from the perspective of the different gospel writers. While we're doing that, 
As I mentioned, there's a cycle for the first readings too. And so right now, we're cycling through from the first book of Samuel. And for a couple weeks, we will be reading in sequence through that. And eventually, when that sequence ends, we'll pick a different book. The church will pick a different book. And again, we'll move through it in sequence. So in a sense, we have two parallel stories running all the time on the weekdays of ordinary time. We have a story from the Old Testament or a discussion from one of St. Paul's letters, and we read that sequentially from beginning to end. And we also then have the cycle of moving through the gospel. Sometimes there will be an obvious and clear correspondence between the readings, sometimes not so much. Because the readings are not chosen because they match one another. They're chosen to move us through as much of the biblical witness as we can do in the course of a year. Note how beautiful that is. That as we move through ordinary worship over the course of two years, we hear from all of the books of sacred scripture. And so if we listen attentively, if we listen attentively, the scriptures can truly and fully penetrate us. Having said that, for those of you who want to play catch-up, okay, if you didn't get to Mass every day this week, the Gospel of Mark, we're only in chapter 2. So if you read chapter 1 and the first 12 verses of chapter 2, you would get right to the beginning of this story. And in a sense, you would be caught up. But for the first several weeks of ordinary time, the Gospel of Mark will be our companion, and it will be matched up against various readings from the Old or New Testament as we cycle through. And so having said that, note that there are some remarkable connections between our readings today. There is, on the one hand, the surprising election of Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, to be the first king of Israel. And there is the surprising election by Jesus of the tax collector named Levi, whom we commonly name Matthew, to be an apostle. And there is an element of divine choice at work in each case, and the choice is surprising in some ways. So let's look at the, what we have from the book of Samuel first, because it is very instructive. Samuel is the last of the judges and a great prophet. Samuel is the one who anoints the first kings of Israel. He anoints Saul and he anoints David who succeeded him. Samuel is the one who presided over divine worship at the sanctuary in Shiloh because Jerusalem was still not part of Israel yet. And the people, feeling the threat of their enemies, the Philistines, called out to the Lord and said, this is nuts. Any self-respecting people has a king. Any self-respecting people has a guy who's in charge who tells them what to do. And great nations, mighty nations have kings, and kings are splendid and powerful, and we want a king. 
Notice how we're hearing, in a sense, this cry from Israel just after we've celebrated the birth of the promised king, the heaven-sent king. Context is important for why certain readings are chosen. And so here it is that the Lord says to Samuel in the reading the other day, Israel hasn't rejected you, it's rejected me. It doesn't want to depend on listening to my word and learning my ways. It wants an easier way of having someone tell it what to do and what to think. And let's pause right there. Because this attitude has poisoned society for how long? And it is very active and very alive today where all too readily we don't want to do the difficult and often uncertain work of seeking to discern, know, and follow the will of God. What we want are easy benchmarks and buzzwords and sound bites that we can build our lives around. You know, the modern Christian heart, if it's not careful, does the same thing without even realizing it. And what we do is we say to the Lord, it's wonderful that you're the Lord, but I still want a king. I want a strong man. I want someone who cuts a splendid figure so that I can look at them and seeing that earthly glory, I can convince myself I've seen divine goodness. And so the Lord says, all right, we'll do this. And so what we see here now is the beginning of the tortured history of kingship in Israel. And I use that word very deliberately because it is a tortured history. It has moments of real beauty, but it is also filled with no small amount of tragedy and woundedness. And it begins now with Saul, son of Cush of the tribe of Benjamin who is simply out looking for the missing cattle and gets the job of being king. <laughs> so again, note how surprising this is. He's simply doing a job for his dad. And he's clearly from a wealthy family. They have cattle, numerous enough that some of it can get lost, and they have servants. And so he's going out with the servants to find the lost flock he comes to Samuel because the, Samuel is the prophet, the seer, who might be able to help him. And Samuel helps him to the throne. And what do we hear? Saul stood head and shoulders over everybody. And no one was more handsome in all of Israel than Saul. It's almost as if the Lord is having a little fun with our idea of what the qualifications of a ruler are. He cut a fine appearance. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, how easy it is for us to be impressed by the fine appearance, by the eloquent word, by the sound bite that agrees with what I'm already thinking. He cut a splendid figure. We don't hear that he was skilled in administration. We don't hear that he was a great military leader. We don't hear any of those things. 
but this is the one that I have chosen, the Lord says. And to the human eye, the human eye can see why. Well, look at him. He's impressive. But what God is doing is he's giving him a chance to grow into the kingship. And we will see over the unfolding of these readings from the first book of Samuel that that is a growth that doesn't fully develop. And this first king will fulfill everything that Samuel told the people. You want a king, oh, and he's going to tell you what to do. And he's going to tax you. And he's going to take from you what you have worked to earn. And he is going to take your sons and draft them into his army. And you won't have a choice. Because that's what comes with a king. You will trade dignity and freedom for a certain sense of safety. But you will also stop relying on me to protect you, defend you, and guide you, unless the king relies on me to protect you, defend you, and guide you. Note how that works. And so here we're at the beginning, and everything looks promising for Saul. And everything looks promising for the people because they get what they want. And the Lord has promised him that he will go forth with him. But what remains to be seen is whether Saul's heart will remain with the Lord who has chosen him. Whether Saul's heart will remain with the Lord who has called him whether Saul will rely on the Lord in a way that brings the people to do so or not. That's the real question. There's this sudden increase in dignity, this marvelous and surprising call that lifts Saul out of obscurity to prominence. And now the next question is, where are we going with this? And where will the people go with this? And we know from what we've just celebrated a few weeks ago on Christmas Day that the upshot of all of this eventually is the expectation for a king who is in fact truly just, truly righteous, truly perfect, who truly will bring the salvation that we long for. And why would we long for that? Because it wasn't any of his predecessors. But it's also, you know, spoiler alert, Jesus is referred to as son of David, not son of Saul. And that should give us a really big clue as to how the story of Saul ends. And so now we turn to then the son of David the son of David, the newborn king of Christmas Day, who is now a mature man going forth into the world, the God-man. And this one comes, a greater prophet than Samuel. This one comes, a more truly anointed king than Saul and David. This one comes, 
but he doesn't cut a splendid appearance. The Gospels never say that Jesus stood head and shoulders above the people. The Gospels never say that no one in Israel was more handsome than Christ. Our pious hearts say those things, and they're likely true. But note that the Gospels never stress that. They never talk about the physical appearance of Jesus to the eye until they describe him in his passion and his woundedness. They don't tell us the color of his hair. The Gospels do not tell us the color of his eyes. They don't tell us how high he was or how wonderfully dressed he was. How different from the description of Saul, isn't it? This king, who comes forth not to cut a splendid figure, but who comes forth to achieve our salvation. The Lord does not come that we are impressed by him. The Lord comes to save us. And so the Lord makes no issue of making dramatic shows of his authority, dramatic shows of his dignity. He acts with that simple authority of a true king who knows that it is his to command and who knows that his commands are founded on a law that is heavenly and not earthly. The humble and poor king of Bethlehem is the one who walks into the tax-collecting house of Levi. And notice again, Jesus doesn't say hello. Jesus doesn't say, hi, I'm Jesus, and I would like to make your acquaintance. Notice how impolite this is. Jesus doesn't come in and say, is it okay if I talk to you about something? He doesn't come to Levi and says, I have a proposal for you to think about and consider. He doesn't say, please. He doesn't even give an option. He simply comes and says in the imperative, it is a command, it is an order, follow me. Note the regal authority, the divine authority that Christ asserts here. He wears no golden crown. But what king ever spoke to a man's heart in such a way that with those words upon first meeting him, this is the response. And it is at that follow me that Matthew leaves aside his former way of life and obtains a new one. Samuel also brought Saul to a new way of life. But note, he offered him something. Come with me because you're going to be king. Jesus simply goes into the custom house where the sinner is counting out the coin of the world in his heart and on that table. And he speaks into the counting house of that heart as surely as he speaks into the, count, the physical counting house where Matthew was sitting. 
and his word cuts through the piles of coins. His word cuts through the ambition and the greed. His word cuts through that sense of guilt and shame. And into all of those things, he says, follow me. And again, what a surprising call to be an apostle. He doesn't go to the temple and choose the holiest priest. He doesn't go among the synagogues and find the, ra the wisest rabbi. He doesn't go to the scribes and the Pharisees and say, which one of you is most faithful to the law? Which one of you is the biggest expert in Scripture? That's what we would do, isn't it? That's what we would do. Just as we do today, we glom on to all of the self-appointed experts. And what does the Lord do? He goes to where one finds a public sinner, an unfaithful, traitorous Israelite. And he goes to him. He goes to him and says, you who are accused of not loving your country, you who are not a good patriot, you who are a vain, ambitious, greedy man who rob from others, you follow me. Now we, we gloss over this story a little too easily. This remarkably authoritative call into all of those realities and against all of those realities and against the easy judgments of the world who looked at Levi and presumed to know him. He's the tax collector. He's a traitor. He's not a good man. He's not a good Israelite. He doesn't love his country. And Jesus looks at him and sees a heart that can follow. What a remarkable thing that is. What a remarkably challenging moment that is for Levi, who has to respond, and for everybody else who sees it. And what do we get? The same thing that the church has heard across the centuries. Why does the church care for these people? Why is so much attention given to them? Note we see it here. Why is he in the house of a sinner and a tax collector? Why is he eating with them, socializing with them, spending his time with them, attaching his reputation to theirs? Shouldn't he be with a better class of people? Why is he not with us? Why is he not like us? And we see here as well then that marvelous statement from the prophets, your ways are not my ways. And the Lord illustrates that here in this call of Levi. And then his answer, this very important answer, which is the very essence of kingship in the eyes of God as well. The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. And I've come for the sick. You know, note that statement. 
I did not come for the healthy, I have come for the sick. I did not come to call righteous, I did come to call sinners. And note again that Jesus doesn't qualify that. Note he doesn't add, but that doesn't mean if you're righteous, you're cut off. He doesn't add, but if you're healthy, it's still okay. Because he's making a statement for everyone to hear. I've come to cure the sickness that is in you who think yourself healthy. I've come to call the sinner in you who believe yourself righteous. And if you would hear me and you would follow me, you also have to know your woundedness and you have to know your sinfulness. Because I call you there and I meet you there and I go to you there and I will be with you there. Not that you stay there or that you leave the counting house, that you come with me. I have come to find you and bring you with me. And why was Saul named king? Because Israel was threatened and overwhelmed by its enemies, not because it was strong, not because it was great. It's the fundamental dynamic of, of his lordship over us. I have come where you are weak to bring you to a point of strength. I have come to that point where you are sick and wounded to bring you to a place of healing. I have come to where you are guilty and ashamed to give you a real dignity. Follow me. And in just a few minutes, we're going to come forward to meet him. And when you hear those words, the body of Christ, that is Jesus on the point of coming into the counting house of your heart and my heart, of your spirit and my spirit. And into that counting house, he is going to say that word to each and every one of us. Follow me. Follow me. And let's have Levi's example in our mind as we hear that word with such a beautiful yet gentle authority. Follow me. And let's ask ourselves that when we leave this place today and we go back to our lives, not just how will we bring Jesus back with us, but what, like Matthew, will we leave behind right here that doesn't go with us? What will we leave behind so that we can follow him more fully? Amen.